Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Oaks Podcast, which exists to provide biblical clarity on psychological topics and issues. My name is Jill Reese, and I am one of the hosts of the podcast. This episode is the second bonus episode from our Oaks Summer event, which took place on August 4th, and it was about identifying and processing our emotions with God and others. In this talk, Nick Gibson talks about what it means to process our emotions with God and others. Nick Gibson is the lead pastor of High Point Church in Madison, Wisconsin. And before we start in this episode, I want to note two things. First, that emotional processing is different from emotional expression. Emotional processing is for everyone, and it is hard for everyone. It is not dependent on emotional expression, which varies person to person. And so I want to encourage you, if you feel like you're not very emotionally expressive, that this talk is still for you. Second, and totally different from the first note, at the beginning of the event, Nick invited me to join him in his talk. And so you'll also hear me adding some color commentary throughout the talk. We hope that this talk is helpful toward integrating psychological knowledge in your mind and towards biblical clarity, and also in practicing, processing your emotions with God and others. So Nick is the next speaker, and uh, he was one of the Made Whole speaker or Made Whole Conference speakers as well. And he spoke on the topics of shame and psychological and theological integration. And he was also a main session speaker. So for those of you who aren't from High Point or weren't at the Made Whole Conference, that's some context. And he has also been leading Christian ministries in the secular landscape for over 20 years, and has pastored in three growing churches in Illinois, Florida, and Wisconsin. He has been the lead pastor of High Point Church in Madison for 13 years. Nick and his wife, Alexi, have been married for almost 24 years and have four children, ranging in ages from 10 to 20. He is the author of three books, the latest of which is Substance, Becoming Oaks of Righteousness in a World of Vapor. And um, if you've mostly heard Nick preach, it might be surprising to you that, he, uh, that I asked him to speak on emotions. But... Um, no offense. <laughs> uh, but um, he actually, I've been on the staff team at a high point for eight years, and I've actually probably learned the most from him out of anyone in how to actually effectively process my emotions with God and others. And I have been a very emotional person during that time. So um, I have grown a lot. So I think I just want to share that with you, and uh, I hope that it's helpful. So welcome, Nick. Thanks, Jeff. So uh, at 4.45 today, I asked Jill to do this talk with me, partly because I want to make her nervous. And because this is like us practicing too. Like I don't do a lot of speaking on the integration of um, psychology and um, theology and discipleship. This is something we're all growing in. Hopefully you guys are learning some stuff, getting ready to do some things. Um, so I'm also trying to get Jill to get as honed as possible. And so now she, this is getting honed without prep. So this is a very special thing I get to push her into. Um, so she's gonna, we're going to be going back and forth a little bit. Um, who here is not from High Point Church? but in the local church. Great, great. Good to see you guys. Um, is there anybody here who's like, you do like a mental health outside of the church as your main like seeing people thing? Is there anybody who that's your, that's your thing? A couple of you guys? Okay, great. Yep. Um, it's really good to see you. I'm glad that you're here. I love to see local churches trying to integrate things that they're doing um, in order for Madison to really be affected by the gospel. Different local churches are going to have to like be really good at something and then do it in a scalable way that other churches just can do it without reinventing the wheel. And so hopefully this is one of the things that we can make a contribution in. Um, we've tried to make a contribution in Christian schooling, um, teaming up with Lighthouse Church and City Church. And I, I think that's been really good. And so there's some stuff like that where, where it's necessary for us to work together really closely, even though we have really distinct um, manifestations of worship and shepherding dynamics, right? So um, I want to, we're going to talk about um, <clears throat> processing emotion. So to start with, I, I'm sometimes accused of not being applicable, being mostly theoretical. What, what I'd like you to do to start with here is um, just try to come up with something that is mild in nature, so not like horrifically triggering, that you had some kind of negative emotion about this week. Just think for a second. It could just be like a spat at work or like something that just tweaked you the wrong way. And like you just, you felt yourself like have like an emotional response to it. And as we go through this stuff, like go through that. Like 
vary exactly with a particular thing. It'll help you remember stuff. It'll help you think about the process. It'll help you get a sense of the productiveness of the process. You might find it generative. You're like, oh wait, I, yeah, I didn't really actually realize that was that. And um, hopefully that you'll find that helpful. And so you'll, you'll get application and applicability even when we're doing the parts that are theoretical. Does that make sense? Okay, great. All right. So uh, many of us avoid emotional processing by misusing psychological categories. So I had mentioned even just during the break announcements that it's really hard for every human to process our emotions and we want to like redirect in any way we can. And we can even use like psychology to do that. <laughs> and so I think that some common ways that we avoid emotional processing by misusing psychological categories, we project our emotions onto other people. So we might feel anxious, but we kind of explain why by like, well, that person's doing that and that person's doing that. And so I feel anxious. And that kind of leads to justification is another one. Intellectualizing versus processing. I think that's really common right now with knowing about trauma and all the ways we've been traumatized, but still being in profoundly impacted by it, not actually processing it. And, uh, also, our, like, our psychological categories and our emotions and our experiences can feel very familiar and can be, feel like part of our identity and to move away from them and to heal. This sounds crazy, but I know I've experienced it. I know others have. It almost feels like letting go of part of yourself, and that's really scary. But yeah. there is still something on the other like side. A comfort, you're like you're getting rid of a comforting friend who's just yeah. been there your whole life. Even though it's <laughs> treated you terribly. terribly. Yeah. So yeah, um, I, that's just very normal, very human. I think one of the key points we want to make here is, is that like people go to counseling and they'll talk to a counselor for a while and their counselor in a really well-meaning way will lose, use a lot of psychological language. Well, that's gaslighting and this is your having an anxiety thing and this, you're cycling on this and this is rumination, right? And what ends up happening is, is that people start learning these words and they don't really know what they mean really technically, but they have like a sort of like popular understanding of what the words mean. And then they actually start using the psychological categories themselves to keep themselves from facing the thing they have to face. So if you're raising a kid, you're, you're mentoring somebody, you're dealing with this yourself, one of the first things to do is they start using psychological words, be careful. That actually may not mean they've been processing their emotions. It may mean that they have learned how to not process their emotions using psychology, right? Now, for those of you who are counselors and you're like, well, that's really convenient for you to say, Nick, pastor guy. You are right. Religion is just as usable to, instead of grow spiritually, to come up with excuses and categories to keep from growing spiritually. And so a lot of the things that are meant to help us process emotions and process things spiritually and grow spiritually as human beings are the very things we learn to use to stop that from happening. And so one of the first things you have to do as you try to grow the emotion is, is you're like, are, is your Christian spirituality— actually helping you grow as a person, process your emotion, or are you unwittingly in some way using part of it to protect yourself from doing so? Because every time that emotion comes up, you intellectualize it with a doctrine or a, spirit, or, or a psychological word, and now you think you're done, right? Okay. The I have thing, one more thing to say about that. Yeah, Just an encouragement that both in religion and in psychology, what is foundational will feel basic, but it's not. Like, you need it. It's like a foundation of the house. It's not that you're like a baby. It's just, like, we want to kind of sophisticate things, but then we often lose the foundation. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay, so the second thing is, is that the Bible is more full of the processing of emotion than a lot of people think. Um, it's partly because when we don't want to process emotion, we like the parts of the Bible that don't focus on the processing of emotion. For example, w when I was younger, and I had a lot more difficulty with this, um, I just liked all of Paul's epistles better than everything else in the Bible. I still don't really like the book of Psalms. There are some people who like really like to process their emotions and feel emotions. They, they, Psalms is like the only book they want to read, right? But if you just say, is there emotional processing in the Bible? Does the Bible show us emotional processing? And the answer is yes, constantly and everywhere. Poetry, for example, is almost by definition the conceptualized processing of emotion. Poetry is, in some sense, one of the highest forms of human creation because it's, t it's taking something you're, you've thought through and expressing it in an emotive kind of way. Does that make sense? And so, um, so, so you have that, so like Song of Songs, also like, so it's not just negative, it's also positive. So you have to have eyes to see where is positive emotion being processed? You're like, why do you have to process positive emotion? If you don't, it, po processing positive emotion is called expression, 
right? So if God brings this thing he invented called a woman to the man in Genesis 2, and he's like, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? Like, and he still kind of spouts poetic, right? He's expressing positive emotion. If you can't do that, here's the problem. You, you, don't, you're, you don't increase your capacity to feel and express it, right? Just like processing your negative emotions can cause you to like kind of put those in their place and figure out what's going on, and they are less activating. With positive emotion, you want to like express it and engage with that emotion so that it can grow, right? And in the Bible, you see a lot of positive expression. Adam's song over Eve, Miriam's song over the destruction of her enemies, and so on, right? The song of songs, the man over his wife and the, and the woman over her husband, right? But also negative emotions. Like, there's a whole book called Lamentations, which is literally a way to process emotion, the emotion of grief, right? So it's important to recognize, and even Jesus, like, people are like, well, what does Jesus pray about when he goes off for a night and prays? If he knows God and he knows stuff, and like, is he downloading information, Right? Even on the cross itself, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And people are like, see, Jesus wasn't God, right? And like, that's the first line of Psalm 22, which is a poem of expressing and processing negative emotion about the feeling of abandonment in a world in which you know God is sovereign and acting. Does that make sense? To Jesus, in his death, is processing emotion and expressing emotion to everybody around them, so that in that moment, he can be the strongest person who's ever been and say to the, to the wretched people murdering him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He can love and forgive his enemies in the worst possible injustice because he can, exp- he can express, he can move, he can be emotive in the very way he needs to be to forgive and to love. Okay, um, now, in the processing of emotion, there is, in, in time, across what's going on in us, which sometimes people say synchronic, that's like in the moment, and then through time, dia, through, chronic time, through time. Now, there's two ways to think about processing emotion relative to this. One is, what's happening right this minute? Okay? What is our, you could say, our response to the emotion that we're having right now? Because here's the thing, love and holiness only ever exist in the present. Do you understand that? You can't be holy tomorrow until tomorrow comes, right? You can't rest on being holy or loving somebody yesterday. The question is, is God's fullness operating in you right now, i.e. holiest, and are you loving your neighbor or those right with you right now? And unprocessed emotions and stuff like that can interfere with that profoundly. And so in the moment, you've got to respond to it. You've got to process that emotion in immediate response so that you don't act sinfully towards other people and you can actually love them in real time. But you can't do it all in the moment, right? If something flares up right there, you can kind of handle it in the moment, right? But in order to grow in strength in in dealing with that kind of emotion over time and to actually process it so, so it's not as acute over time, you have to have a reflective relationship. If you think about it this way, an infant will breathe and fill its lungs there, right? Its lungs are 100% full. But when they're an adult, they will be able to breathe, fill their lungs 100% full, and they'll, it'll contain five times as much air. Does that make sense? We're not—we're trying to take in a full breath in the moment in response. But over time, we want to deal with that negative emotion, and we want to grow in discipling strength so that our response is better and better and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. Does that make sense? So you want to think, what's my response, dealing with negative emotion, processing it, and what's my reflective relationship? How am I healing and growing? Do you have any comments on that before we go? I just want to comment on the word discipleship, because I know that's kind of like a churchy word that a lot of us have used a lot. And, and discipleship can be both rehabilitative and healing and formative and growing, so that we are healed, but we're also strengthened so that we don't get as hurt. It's not that we're more stoic. We're just able to bear more weight. Yeah, great. All right. So um, we're going to look at a couple things now. We're going to focus. So I, w- I would break this emotional processing down into identifying, processing, and then reckoning. We haven't really talked about reckoning yet. Danny talked a lot about the first two. She hit some stuff in that, that third one. We'll get that in a minute. So these first two is what we're going to hit first, okay? Now, um, I would break this down, mental resolution is what I'll call it, into four parts. And then Jill's going to walk us through like how we actually engage with these steps. So without these four parts, 
I don't think that we're, we can operate the way God wants us to operate as human beings, right? Because we're, we're not just animals that are having reactions, and we want to make those reactions a little less bad so we can be a little healthier and happier, right? We're image bearers of the Holy God, capable of spiritual and moral action, in which when we come in line with God, we will find ourselves healthier and happier. But that's not why we do it, right? We're not instrumentalists. We don't do things because we get stuff, right? We're doing these things because they're good, true, and beautiful. They're right with our character, and they follow our telos, our purpose with God, so we can grow up into full maturity in Christ, and we can know God as He is. Does that make sense? So, one, you have to acknowledge and recognize the emotion, right? You, you got to be honest, and you got to be attentive, right? Those two things have to happen. So, this is happening. I feel this. It wants to take or has, is trying to take the steering wheel of my mind in my behavior, in my feelings, okay? The second is verifying or reckoning with the perception, which is, is my perception, are my perception glasses clear-ish? None of our perceptions about things are ever going to be totally clear. There's too much going on. We know too little. There are too many motivations we don't understand. Your perceptions are never going to be perfect. But are they clear-ish? Right? Can you trust them enough to act? Right? The third thing is reckoning with the emotion and its subject, which is what we'll call processing. And then the fourth is shaping appropriate action. What are we going to do now? Two interesting ways to think about some of this is, one, is up here, if you look at, there's some clouds up there. Um, Steve Cuss, who wrote Managing Leadership Anxiety, says, one of the first things we need to do with negative emotion or anxiety when it comes up, these kinds of emotions that want to take control in the present, is you need to observe it like you would observe a weather system in the sky. You're living your life, and you kind of looked up, and you can see the clouds rolling in, and you're like, oh, something's happening. Anxiety and some of these negative emotions, you, you want to learn to observe the weather pattern coming in. You can feel the cool change in like the dew point. You can, you know something's changing, you're sensitive to it, and you can recognize it. That's the first step in not taking it out on other people and just re being reactive. Does that make sense? And then the second thing, that's an old guy doing physical therapy, right? Is that usually appropriate action is going to be something like the opposite of what you want to do as a reaction. Your reactive thing is usually going to be defensive and, and like protecting of yourself. But here's the thing. Most protective actions are also weakening actions. The things we do to keep ourselves safe in the present is usually to draw us back to safety rather than pushing forward into risk and creativity that makes us grow and that strengthens us. And so if you keep picking safety, you're, you're safe in the present, but you get weaker and weaker and weaker. And so you're functionally more and more unsafe. And so generally speaking, what you got to do is you, you might have to like temporarily or for a moment or a way create a safety dynamic like a boundary or drawing back from a situation. But ultimately, you have to surge in. You have to do the physical therapy. You have to do the opposite of the reaction oftentimes. Does that make sense? All right, Jill. Okay. So there's lots of language out there around processing emotions and you'll notice that, like, if you look, read through the Psalms, this is kind of like the pattern that's in the Psalms. This is also sort of the pattern you'll find in cognitive behavioral therapy. This is, and Danny talked about something similar. So this is, there, and this is what's on, similar to what's on the handout. This is just a process kind of to think through, and this is one way. There's different, like, language used, but this is kind of the process, generally. So uh, let's, we're just going to go through it. If you have that thing that you thought of at the beginning in your mind right now, that might help you put some language to it. So these two handouts are the two of the things that we think anybody can do. You can do this with a kid in your house. Mm -hmm. You can do this with yourself, with your journal. You can do this with somebody that you're discipling, right? You can use that emotion circle, because a lot of people just have a hard time naming it without that. And then you can use these five processes. And you can do that with like an eight-year-old who's like raging in your house. You can be like, okay, let's, why are we feeling this way? Like, what's happening? And you can like, you don't have to necessarily use exactly this language, but if you memorize these five steps or you have the card, you can be like, let's go through the five steps. And you can just do it and like, people can just learn to do this. Okay, sorry. Yeah, and it becomes a rhythm. Like, you don't have to literally remember every, everything. It just becomes a rhythm. So uh, first is, like Nick mentioned with the weather patterns, just identifying the triggered state. And one way to think about this is like, you're not your best self right now. Like, you're reacting to something. Uh, and this is the easiest state to impulsively try to justify if you're not noticing it. So instead of justifying your reaction, notice it and just kind of let it be like a neutral thing that's happening. Uh, and then go one step deeper. Identify the feelings. What feelings are underneath that reaction? Basically, like what, 
Yeah. Why are you reacting? What do you feel underneath that? And so, getting creative. Yeah. Can I on, yeah. Just a on, the, on that first one, for some of the things in your life that are triggered states, you will not be able to observe them. Mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons why in Christian discipline and community, we invite other people to tell us stuff. For some of the things where you're behaving in ways that are bad, you have, you have no idea how that's happening. And you don't, it's very hard to see it happening. You need somebody close enough and caring enough who will be like, when we were just in that room, remember when you said this? And they did this? And they did, you did that? That was not your best self. I don't know what was triggering you. And I don't think you observed it, right? And once you get some of this language too, you can also offer things to other people in ways that are a little less triggering for them and a little kinder. Does that make sense? But like sometimes for that first one, Christian community where people really have candor and they're willing to not flatter you but tell you the truth, even if it hurts your feelings, it's super critical for growth. And it's not real popular in our culture, but if we could practice it with love, it would really, really help us. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, and now I have a comment on that, but just to stop, like stop at the observation at this point. So if, especially if you're noticing something in someone else, you don't need to explain to them what their wound is and why they're acting that way. You don't know that, you don't know someone else's motivations, but you can observe, you know, that like seemed are you okay? Like, that seemed off to me. Um, but even for yourself to have that language, am I okay? That seemed off. Um, but that's kind of this observation phase. Um, you might notice something in your body, all the things Danny talked about. Then identifying the feelings and uh, make sure to think beyond our respectable cultural feelings. And by that, I mean things like depression and anxiety. Those are very respectable, justifiable feelings in our culture. And sometimes... Envy feels like anxiety, and anger feels like anxiety, and there's something underneath the anxiety. Both anxiety and depression are sort of like these dispersed, kind of like frozen feelings. Um, there's a, like a deeper feeling underneath them that hasn't really been processed, and so mm -hmm. uh, make sure to dig deeper and, and think, am I jealous right now? Am I angry at that person? Is there something happening that I feel stuck or like it's unjust? So feelings wheel will help you with that. And then identifying the external triggers. So what thing or types of things outside of you activates this response? So this is really just like, what is in the air that made me react? This could be really uh, surprising. Like, here's an example. So just from my own life, um, my parents were divorced and I went to my dad's house and my mom's house and back and forth. And I always packed a duffel bag. And so years years, years, years later into my marriage, which is, was fine, I would, when we would go on vacation, I would have really, really struggle the first few days. And I realized over time it was because I would pack a duffel bag. And that for me was, it just brought up all these feelings that I was not aware of. It seemed really neutral because it was so removed from the original situation. So a trigger can be something that's really neutral in the environment, but it reminds you of something and it it might take a little while to get there. Yeah. Let me jump to you right here. So it, let's say you're mentoring somebody and they're, they're behaving in a certain way. And one of the things that might happen is they might have a, a cluster of triggers and it might take more than one example for them to really get at what's going on. So it could be like they act a certain way in a certain thing at work and then they act a certain way with their spouse. And, then, and if, you, if you get, okay, so what's similar about these three situations? Okay, you're triggered. This was a trigger. This was a trigger. This was a trigger. Okay, so... And then you can start correlating them. So sometimes it actually takes time. Like I, there's one of the things that I worked on where like it took me a couple of years and I had a list of seven triggers before I was like, okay, which of these is all, all like the other, right? And it was like, and then I had a moment where I was like, oh. Because usually the thing that's triggering you is so simple that it's humiliating and embarrassing. And so mentally you don't really want to see it, right? Because it, it's kind of childish and humiliating. And so you're, so you, so you, sometimes you need multiple examples. And if you can, sometimes, so keep, even if you can't figure out the root, keep track of the triggers. Does that make sense? Because even if you can't figure out the root, knowing that trigger and then correlating with other ones you experience will help you get to the root at some point. Even if another person has to help you, where you're like, okay, here's my four triggers. Can you help me? And they're like, well, that sounds like it would be something like this. And then you're like, oh, shoot. Does that make sense? It's good data. Yeah. It, there's often a pattern to it. So then identifying the internal root. Again, this might take a little bit of time, um, but this will become a rhythm that you'll be able to do more naturally over time. So what is the thing inside of you that's activated by, that, by a trigger? 
uh, that's underneath the feeling. And this could be natural, like there's core needs that we all have as humans, like security and belonging, things like that. And those are normal and not to be ashamed of. And so if you feel like you're not getting that, like there's a trauma in your past or something where you didn't get that met and you're reminded of that, it makes sense that you're going to respond that way. But you also need to identify that root so you can unlink it because in the present, it might be different. Um, so yeah, the roots could be, are often feel silly. <laughs> it feels like I don't, I don't feel wanted. I feel stupid. It feels like a, a, like a little five-year-old saying like, I feel stupid. I feel um, sad. I feel weak. I feel, um, yeah, unwanted, ugly, those kinds of things. So there's an internal root underneath all of what's going on on the surface. And then identify and choose a response instead. This is often, this is sometimes what I call an exit plan. <laughs> like on the plane when they say, you know, in case it goes down into the water, you have to put your airbag on. So you will have to know this before it ever could happen to like, once you start developing this pattern of recognizing your triggers and the root, you then can make a response. Like in, in those situations, when I feel anxious about these types of things, I am instead going to do this. And that's kind of that intentional, I don't know what you said before, that like action thing. Mm -hmm. Physical therapy. Yes. The phys well, you had a word, you had, anyway, language for it. But choosing the action and the response in the physical therapy, it's going to be a plan. I literally have it in my phone. Like I have a list of things I can do instead because in the moment where I'm triggered is not the time for me to come up with a plan. Yeah. So, um, shaping appropriate action is what I said. Yeah. Shaping appropriate action. So, um, so this will come with time, but even if it's in the moment and you need to pick something like usually something is not urgent to respond to. And so you can even just take a pause and I turn my phone off in those moments just as an automatic, like I just need to not freak out and like text everyone I know. I just need to like take a moment. So um, that's just the general process. So, so the context here for response, because we're going to talk about what Jill said in a second in terms of like what to do, like what is, it, what is our holy and loving response where I'm moving out creatively into risk and growth rather than pulling back into security that's, that actually increases my weakness. Um, that right here we're talking about just in what's going on inside of you. So the processing here, um, the response here is a processing response. So when you identify the root, right, you're saying, okay, so here's this root. Now, why is this so important? Why do I, so like, I feel scared. That's partly the root here. Okay, why do I feel scared? Why do I feel like I need something I'm not getting right now? And do I really need that thing, right? Is it a fear? So do I, is, is it a wound that I'm carrying, right? Is it a lie that I believe? Is it an idol that I worship, right? So in some ways, when you look at different parts of the Christian church, these are, the different metaphors tend to be the thing that people really care about. But what I would say, from the perspective of what we're trying to do, let's, let's get more metaphors. Because you never know which one's going to be really generative for you. So like if you're a charismatic, usually um, what's the lie is what charismatics use for their, their um, processing, right? What's your identity in Christ, right? Because charismatics start with intimacy with God. Then what's your identity in Christ? Then what's inhibiting you knowing your identity in Christ? Therefore, what lie are you believing? Does that make sense? And that's a really good one, right? Okay, so, so like, so, you, so if you're not charismatic, you still get to use that one, okay? That's a good one, all right? So then, but then, so if you get into the, like, reformed, like, Presbyterian Calvinist side of the church, they tend to think more about idolatry, okay? So what human beings long for is salvation. They want their life to go the way it needs to, right? And so what do you think is going to get you the thing that you feel like you want? And is that thing God, or is it something else competing with God? That thing's an idol, okay? So you see, like, you could actually come to the same conclusion both those ways. The idol and the lie could be very similar, coming from similar places. But you might go, oh, yes, I am bowing down to that thing because it's good. I think it's going to get me that thing. That's the idol, right? And you might, with the lie metaphor, you, that might not become as clear, right? So use, the, use that lie metaphor, use that idol metaphor, and like keep your eyes open in the Bible for like other metaphors of— like, like there's um, metaphors in Paul's epistles of like taking off clothing and putting on new clothing. Like, is there a covering garment that you are, like, what's covering you that if you take off, you feel like you're going to be exposed, right? What is that garment? Why is the garment of Christ not sufficient, right? Because in the garment of Christ, there is the acknowledgement of your humiliation and the justifying covering of the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? So if you don't want that, it's because you don't want the exposure or you don't believe in 
the supply. Does that make sense? And so like using these different metaphors can help you process through things because there's something amiss. So there's, there's because what we're saying here is like, there's sometimes where like you're driving in a car and somebody almost hits you, right? And you're like, oh, and like you feel triggered, right? But that's perfectly appropriate. You should be terrified. Your hands should shake after that because you were almost killed, right? And so your body is responding the way it should. What we're talking about in, in processing negative emotion is when you, what's happening is not productive. The, the triggering effect or what's going on in your emotions isn't helping you. It's not natural. It's not leading towards something good. It's not protecting you truly. It's actually inhibiting you from functioning well. When that's happening, one of these is operating. A wound, a lie, an idol, a something. And you need to find what that is if you're really going to process it such that it will improve over time. Does that make sense? Now, once you get that far, then you're not really done because those things are still operating in your life. They're affecting your actions. They're affecting your relationships. They're affecting your philosophy and how you—what you do and what you're hoping for and, like, how much money you're saving and whether or not you'll actually—like, everything in your life is affected by these things. And so the third area is reckoning. Now that you're processing through those things, how are you going to reckon that into your life to, to truly actively— bravely and with courageously engage in life in such a way as that you can operate in it, right? Because one of the things that you're going to face is the fact, and and one of the reasons why sometimes this does not get discussed well in counseling offices, in I think our opinion, is because the only way to fully reckon through these things is if something is interposed in all the problems that allows them to be set right. Within the Christian faith—oh, sorry— Okay, I'm going to go back to that in a second. Within the Christian faith, the thing that operates this way is the atonement. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The supernatural um, offer of God to interpose where we are in fact lacking, where we are in fact guilty, where we should in fact be ashamed, where we we are not enough, where, where all of those negative emotions are fulfilled or filled in or supported up in the accomplishment of Christ as the as the sacrificial savior, as the one who is victorious over death and hell and loss and insecurity and all these things that are bound up in his death, right? And so without a atonement, psychological and processing reckoning cannot function optimally, right? Because of that, um, what tends to happen is that even people who don't believe in the atonement engage with the difficulties of processing their life where they feel implicated with the same dynamics of salvation. Okay? What do I mean by this? If you process through your emotions, and let's say you have this—you're triggered, you have these feelings, you go through it, and you get down to the reckoning part, or the, uh, the processing part, your response, and you realize that you love an idol. Right? Here's the problem. You can process that, but what happens is, is that in your recognition of what's going on in you, you are morally implicated. Okay? There's something wrong. You've done—that's just something wrong with you that needs healing. You've done wrong. And then you start realizing how that's harmed other people. And then you realize how that's harmed—right? And you're like, oh, shoot, this is bad. And you start beginning to feel feelings of shame and guilt. Now, what Danny said about Brene Brown, that she's like the queen of shame and guilt literature and stuff like that, is true. Also, she says a lot of really helpful things about shame and guilt. What she does not have a concept for is atonement. And because she does not have a concept of atonement, she does not have a concept of productive shame. The Bible believes and teaches that there is unproductive shame. That's mainly what Brown writes about. Well, she actually lumps it all together and calls it all unproductive shame, which is wrong. There's a good part that's unproductive shame, and then there's a part that's really productive shame. It's supposed to point you towards repentance and towards restoration and towards setting things right with other people. Restoration, right? Sorry, I just used the same word twice. Now, if you don't therefore have a doctrine of atonement that can set that shame and guilt right because of the activity of God himself, that can actuate it in the human soul, you still have to reckon with it because the human self has a conscience, right? And because you have a conscience, your conscience is always going to operate on three levels. I need to find this note really quick. Right? On one level, your conscience will warn you, right? Be like, you, you shouldn't do that, Right? On a second level, your conscience will convict you and say, you did it. You should not have done that. That's bad, right? But if you don't respond to that second act of conscience, your conscience takes on a third role, which is the role of the avenger. 
okay? In Greek literature, they refer to this as the Furies, and they were depicted as these, like, women wraiths from the outside who would come in and they would, they would, like, wreak havoc upon the unrepentant person, the person who did evil but wouldn't acknowledge it. And, but, but psychologically, it's actually an internal faculty that God has given us, the conscience. And the conscience warned us, and then it told us we were wrong, and then we wouldn't admit that we were wrong, and we keep pushing until conscience becomes an avenger. It actually starts avenging upon us shame and guilt so that we will turn back, right? This can also feel like anxiety and depression if it's yes. unresolved. Yes, right? And so, um, so what will happen is that human beings will respond by going through the process of salvation in psychological ways, in false ways. Because there, if every step of salvation and reckoning with our guilt and shame, there is a counterfeit version of it. And if it's not reckoned in Christ, it will, you will do the counterfeit version. And there's numerous versions of each counterfeit, and they feed on each other. If you do one, you'll probably do the next one too. So for example, there is false remorse. So you can feel guilt without repentance. You can say, I did something wrong, and I'm feeling bad about it. You, like, Jill's like, Nick, you did things like, Jill, how bad do you want me to feel? Do you want me to feel bad forever? I feel like I feel bad enough, right? And she's like, well, I'm sorry, <laughs> right? And it's like, see, I'm, but I, I'm not actually admitting I'm wrong. I feel bad, right? Or shamelessness is another false remorse. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm engaging with it, but I'm actually going to explain why I shouldn't feel bad. Right? The second is false confession. So um, narration is the external version. I could tell Jill for an hour about something that happened, but at no point do I say anything that actually takes ownership. I was wrong. Right? We did this thing recently where Jill was like, look, if you're talking about something psychological, and you kind of go on and on and on, and you're like, oh, you need to hear this, and you need to hear this, and it's like going on and on and on. What you're doing is you're narrating, you're not taking ownership. This will save you so much time in mentoring, you guys. So much time in mentoring. Because if you're talking with somebody mentoring, and they're just going on and on and on and on, you're just like, wait, I need to stop you. When people talk like this, it's usually because they're narrating rather than taking ownership. If what you want to do is to take ownership of this thing you're telling me about, you would just tell me the parts where you were wrong. Right? Where, like, where you want to be like, I did this and I should have done this. I want to be this person, but I was that person. Does that make sense? Or that would be integral in the storytelling. Yeah, go ahead. Or also, like, I was hurt, or I was—this is what it meant to me. That's—motivations can be actions, feelings, thoughts, um, or motivations. Yeah, yeah. E- each of these could be a talk. It's right. So, so then um, rumination is when you do it inside your own head. You run it through and run it through and run it through and run it through and run it through, but you're not—see, on, see, how do you cut off that circle in your head? It goes round and round and round and round, round, right? Now, what psychologists will normally tell you, and this is good advice, it's just not complete advice, is look, you can't reason with rumination. You just have to take a sword, imagine a circle going around your head, and imagine a sword in your hand, and you just cut it in half. You don't try to untie it, and you don't listen to it. You just cut it in half, and you stop listening, okay? Now, part of the issue, though, is one of the ways you make that cutting in half work is the cutting in half of taking ownership. Either this isn't rational, I'm not listening because I shouldn't take ownership of this, or there is this piece of truth in it, which is why I keep going around, and I don't want to face the whole thing. This is right, and I'm going to take ownership of this, and I'm going to act upon it, right? And that helps you cut the thing in half, right? So rumination happens inside of you, narration outside of you, but in each case, you may not be taking ownership, which actually brings some resolution. False atonement is offering every sacrifice except the one demanded, which is human acknowledgement— and reaching out and receiving the work of Christ. Interpersonally, it is acknowledgement and receiving forgiveness. Right? What most people want, no matter how bad you've hurt them, is they want you to say, I did this. I did that to you. I should have never done that to you. I'm so sorry I did it. I don't ever want to do it again. Almost every apology, that's an apology. If that didn't happen, whatever got called an apology was not an apology. Right? It's another version of, I'm sorry you feel this way. Does that make sense? So, every atonement is offered, and this is why, this is why insistence on the way of the cross is so important. If the atonement of Jesus the Christ is necessary, no matter how much you sort of acknowledge, if you don't acknowledge before God, there is an area of atonement and acknowledgement that never happens. So for the non-Christian person, they can acknowledge generally, psychologically, they can acknowledge it in relationship to other people, but they live in and before God, and the problem is is that their conscience knows even dully that God does exist. 
And so the avenging work of conscience is avenging on behalf of God too. And until you acknowledge it to God, recognizing the work of Christ, that avenging does not completely cease. And the only thing that you can do is to cut off conscience by searing it and saying, I'm not going to listen, and to move into shamelessness. Which is, in the Bible, the worst place a person could psychologically be. If you read the book of Ezekiel. The fourth thing is false reconciliation. Instead of seeking the company of the person you harmed and drawing close to them through reconciliation, you go and you seek worthless company of people equally guilty, and you tell each other about how you're fantastic and those people are uptight. Right? And then the last one is false justification. Sorry, push the button. Which is um, that you condemn others in order to justify yourself. Right? There's this place in the book of Job where Job complains and complains and complains about what's happened to him. And one of the first things God says to him when he actually shows up, he says, Job, will you condemn me in order to justify yourself? Right? Every apology, every interpretation of your childhood, every interpretation of friendships and conflicts, they all come down to that, right? Are you going to—if you're guilty, are you going to—you're going to have to condemn them to justify yourself, right? Are you going to do that? And false justification is any means by which we condemn something else so that we can justify ourselves. Does that make sense? These furies will not tame the avenging conscience. This is why the Christian message, Christian spirituality, and Christ being at the center of it is incredibly important to our psychological care of people for their healing and for our growth in discipleship and development. It's one of the reasons why secularistic counseling is profoundly limited in its capacity to treat human beings in a capacious way as whole selves because they are irreducibly spiritual, and their conscience is irreducibly connected to God and His Lordship. And you cannot deal with the avenging conscience, and so the counselor is left with either cooperating with the faith of the client who does believe in God, or they have to tell the person, oh, don't listen to your conscience doing that, which is profoundly spiritually harmful, right? All right, we got to keep moving. So how do you do actualize, or how does the atonement become profoundly relevant in processing emotion and reckoning with emotion, once we reckon with our emotion, we realize we're implicated. Because Christian te- Christianity teaches that no matter what happens, when we reckon with what's really happened to us, we will find that we've been the victims, and we will always find that we've been the perpetrator also. And so we are always going to find ourselves implicated. And so we have to be able somehow to reckon with us being implicated, the guilt and shame that comes from that, in a way that resolves it and allows us to come back to other people, right? Now, Because of this, I want to point out—it's really important to point out this. The atonement is not only for perpetrators, okay? On one level it is. Jesus died for our sins. On one level, Jesus died for perpetrators. And unless you admit that you're a perpetrator, you can't be saved. But the cross is relevant to the processing of emotion— to more than that. And we're going to talk about just three categories here. And I think if you, if you think about these, you write these down, you have these, you'll find that almost everybody yourself, almost everybody you mentor, anybody you do evangelism with, any child that you're raising, will find themselves more and less personally connected to these three categories. The first category is misfortune. And so this is, this is the sort of suffering that we've endured that is sort of like it seems like no one's fault. It's, you can't really say that person did that thing to me and it was wrong. Um, it could be a generational sin. It could just be kind of like family culture. Uh, I find that a lot of times certain traumas or sufferings repeat in people's lives and solidify the message, the idol, the lie that we believe. Uh, and so this is kind of that category. What do we do when it Life is just hard, and, and what do we, how does the atonement speak to that? And um, a couple of passages that came to my mind are, first, the Beatitudes. Um, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are um, the meek. Uh, and blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those categories, I will, I will be honest with you, that has been one of the hardest things for me to reckon with, because it feels like in our world, in the kingdom of the world, if you are meek, and if you are poor, and if you are pure, you are stepped on and abused. Um, But the way of the cross and through the cross into the kingdom 
Um, those are the things that lead to blessing. And Psalm 37 has been an immense comfort to me personally regarding this topic and atonement. And um, it says that the meek shall inherit the earth and your righteousness will shine like the dawn. And I have seen that play out in every situation in my life over time. Um, so that's some hope okay. to find in really misfortune. Yeah. The reason why those scriptures are relevant is because fundamental to misfortune is we want to overcome it by explaining the world. And you can't. If you honor God's sovereignty, you can't explain misfortune, right? But you can't reject misfortune. And so meekness and humility and engaging with the world as it is, trusting in God's sovereignty, recognizing that you can mourn and lament the misfortune of the world, is this dual emotional process where you're affirming God and affirming that things are bad simultaneously. Now, the reason why this category is the most ignored and, the most in, one, of, and one of the most important is this. Once you begin to have charity for other people, them as perpetrator in the interpretation of your experiences decreases. So, for example, my mom um, did a bunch of stuff that really, really hurt me as a kid, okay? She had a very specific kind of hormone imbalance that is common among Mediterranean women that she didn't create. The more I understood that about her life, the more I realized that it really wasn't her fault in a lot of ways. She was affected by a profound condition that she didn't control. Doctors didn't well understand it. It was hard to treat, Okay. But that's a problem for me now, because instead of being able to blame my mom for being a, a, a bad person, now I lose that way of comforting myself. It's hard to hate her, right? So now what? Right? Jill's in a similar situation. She can look at her, her family, and she can say, my dad did X. I'm so mad at him, right? He's the bad guy. And then she looks at her family system. She does a family genome, and she looks at all the stuff. She's like, oh my gosh, my dad didn't have a chance. Didn't have a chance. And so he becomes more humanized. She begins to have more compassion for him as she's meek herself. She realizes she has kids now. She realizes she's making some mistakes with her kids. And she's like, oh my God. Right? And then she—so her level of you're the perpetrator decreases. Now what? Now what? Where do you go with all that emotion? Well, now the category behind the perpetrator is misfortune. The world shouldn't be this way. Why is the world this way? Why is there so much pain? Why is it like this? Right? And without that category of misfortune, you won't want to let go of the intensity of your grip on the perpetrator. And then you can't humanize that person, you can't love them, you can't forgive them, and you can't enter into the process of healing yourself. And it poisons you, it poisons them, it poisons everything. So having that category of misfortune clearly in place is extraordinarily helpful. Sorry, go ahead. That was great. Okay, victimization. Uh, this is mostly about uh, justice for injustice uh, at the cross through the death and resurrection of Christ. And uh, this is sort of the flip side of, like, just of um, forgiveness for the perpetrator, right? This is justice for the victim. And uh, I th we can see this in Jesus himself. He was, it was profoundly unjust for him to be the one on the cross. He suffered injustice getting on the cross, <laughs> um, was unjustly blamed, and uh, and sentenced and died. So um, we can take hope in that because we can see ourselves in him, but we also know that he rose in victorious over that and is coming with final vengeance over his enemies, which are, which are our enemies. And so this is where like, we see meekness come into play and forgiveness and all of the things that seem like they won't actually work in the world. Uh, but when we follow that pathway, that is the way by which um, we receive justice as the victim. Yeah, so Jesus dies as the perfect victim so that you can identify with him in victimization. Also, the cross, though it, it's meant to save the perpetrator, it's demanded by the victim, right? The reason the cross has to exist is because the victim was victimized, is because what happened to them is morally serious. It can't just be put away. Something profound has to happen for the victim to be acknowledged in the forgiveness of the perpetrator. Otherwise, God could just be like, everybody's forgiven. And the, and the, the perpetrators aren't going to be like, well, that's not right. The perpetrators are going to be like, yeah! It's, and the victims are going to be like, what? What do you do with the cosmic collective what? What? I was raped. I was abandoned. I was, I was murdered. I was, I was, I was, I was, I was, right? The, the death of the Son of God is the admonition and the clarification of the moral seriousness of what happened to you. Your victimization, what was done to you, is infinitely important. It was done to an image bearer of the holy God, as a beloved one of the holy God himself. And 
That perpetration is damnable and requires the most serious possible remedy, which is the death of the Son of God. Right? The victim matters in the cross. Thirdly is the perpetrator. Right? What is the perpetrator to do? You can't make the wrong right. You can't take away the thing that's been done. The thing that has been done is eternally present and is real and cannot be erased. The idea that we can outdo it has never made sense to people. Even ancient people thought, well, maybe if I sacrifice something, right? But nobody ever thought that that ever finished anything, right? The one of these that we usually most hear about in church and most understand is this one for the perpetrator, that Jesus died for the perpetrator instead of destroying them. He could have called the angels to kill even the people who killed him. So the direct perpetrators of the cross, right? The priests and the Roman guards and the crowds. He could have in that moment executed eternal judgment like he will come with the angels ultimately. But what he does in that moment, he says, look, he says both to Peter in the garden and he says in his trial that he could call a legion of angels to come and kill everybody. Instead, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because of his desire to save the perpetrator, his desire to save you and the part of your role as a human being in which you have been a perpetrator. Right? He goes to the cross for you. And so if you understand that in atonement, you can deal with these fundamental implications or trials in the mind and heart of the human person related to the, the non-peace of the human conscience. So that instead of trying to destroy the conscience to make the person feel better, a la secularism, you actually heal the person and rehabilitate to the conscience back to the role of warning. And you give the person a way to constantly move through those so that they're warned, and if they fail in sin, that they're condemned, and if they don't repent, and it begins to avenge, they, you, the person knows how to end the, avenge of, the vengeance of conscience, to escape the penalty of the furies and to come back to a place of peace by coming back to the atonement. And then through that atonement, the peace that comes allows you to then step out in the world and say, now what should I do? What is the act of holy love? I apologize. I restore the relationship because God has restored the relationship with me. I acknowledge what I did. So the other person can be set free from their hatred and, and, and anger, right? And so on. And that flows from the fact that I'm now an atoned person. I also can let things go that I've been victimized about because my victimization has been taken cosmically seriously. I can accept that God has not undervalued my victimization. And so I don't have to take revenge on the world or be angry about it. I can let that go, right? And I also know that the world is not the way I want it to be. And it was not the way it should have been for Jesus. And I can accept the misfortune of the world by lamenting the misfortune as I come in contact with it like Jesus did. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While still recognizing the sovereignty of the good father who prunes things for fruitfulness, not for death. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, when we do worship— what I want to encourage you to do is to, um, is to take the, the thing that you thought of at the beginning, or because you have a few worship songs or whatever, um, if you want to take something a little bit more serious even, and just take those two handouts and work through, work through them. And just be like, what's going on? What's the feeling? What's the thing? And see if, and, and then in that, as a Christian, ask God. Say, God, will you, will you show me something here? Will you, like, can you help me see what's happening? And invite God the Holy Spirit in there, and sometimes you'll really, you'll really find that you have insights you didn't plan on. So.